0: Thank you for coming and let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue our study in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3 and this evening we'll be looking at verses 8 through 14, 8 through 14 I've entitled our study tonight, Be of One Mind, Seek Peace, Live Righteously. Be of One Mind, Seek Peace, and Live Righteously. Last week, we concluded our study of the second of Peter's three themes here in this epistle. Um, the biblical principle of submission. It's not one, of course, that we all say, oh, yeah, I really love that one. You know, it's, it's really, really makes me excited to think about this principle of submission,
1: especially our flesh
0: doesn't really go along with that super well. But and because the proud and independent spirit that was part of Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve is rooted in our spirits, and it's only by God's grace that we can overcome it. And that's the truth, whether it's be our submission to an unjust government, a cruel boss, uh, or in the case of a wife, submitting to an unregenerate husband, none of these things are easy or pleasant. Yet Peter teaches us that we are to do them, what, as unto the Lord, or as he says in First Peter 2.19, because of conscience towards God, because of conscience towards God. God created this world, indeed, the universe in an orderly way, and part of that order is the authority structure that he set in place within that family, within the church, and even within secular government. It's only because of sinful rebelliousness against him, his order, that we have this mess that we have right now in our homes, in our churches, and in our government. So it's not God's fault, it's our fault. It's it's his creation's fault that we have messed up his creation and the order of that creation. In particular, last week, we looked at uh, Peter's um, admonition to husbands and wives and their roles within the family, and two important concepts, submission and honor. We noted that the wife's role of submission is based upon God's order, first of all, his order in creation, 1 Corinthians 11.3, but it's confined within the family. She is to be submissive to her own husband, to her own husband in support of the marriage relationship, but not to all men in the same way. The key, as Paul states in Ephesians 5.22, is that wives are submit to their husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord. That's a, sometimes we don't think about that. We think about doing things because it's convenient, because it looks good, because it's popular, uh, because our friends are doing it. But we, as God's people, should be doing everything we do as unto the Lord with him in mind, not with our particular point of view in mind. So we should look at all things, doing all things as unto the Lord. So your goal, ladies... Uh, is to glorify your Savior in whatever you do, and one way of doing that is being in total submission to the Father's will, in submission to his will. And since it's God the Father who established the marriage relationship as the foundation for our society, each of us, in this case the wife, of course, is to honor that relationship and seek to fulfill your role within it as a wife. Lastly, we looked at the role of the husband, the Christian husband's role in marriage. And if you recall, Peter listed three important responsibilities that husbands have in a marriage, even a marriage to an unbeliever. First, the husband must be considerate and understanding. Secondly, he is to show respect and to give his wife honor. And thirdly, if the husband expects God to answer his prayers, that was kind of an interesting point that Peter made. If he expects to have his prayers answered, then he must treat his wife properly before the Lord. And as we mentioned, both husband and wife must be at peace with one another within their respective roles within their marriage. If they would approach God's throne with one mind and with one heart, then they need to be at peace. They need to be seeking to honor him individually and collectively. So as we move to this middle section of chapter 3, Peter shifts uh, shifts from the subject of submission to his third point, to suffering. That's the underlying theme is suffering. Though he begins with kind of a sub-theme, of unity, not just in marriage relationship, but among all believers. So he kind of lays a, a foundation before him, and we'll talk about that a little bit. So may the Lord open our eyes and ears and hearts to receive from his word what he has in this passage. So first thing we want to look at is one mind, one compassion, which leads to blessing. One mind and one compassion, which leads to blessing in verses 8 and 9. Now, as I said, in one sense, Peter's Remarks here in verses eight through twelve could be a concluding thought to his teaching on submission, but they're also the foundation for a strong church that'll be able to endure suffering. So let's read verses eight and nine just to begin. First Peter, chapter three, verses eight and nine. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So Peter's exhortation here is not uh, just for husbands and wives, but for all believers. He's speaking to all of us, regardless of what our status is. He gives us five admonitions in these two verses. Five admonitions for all believers to follow, or as one commentator put it, the central grace the stalk or root of all the others being love as brothers. The central grace or stalk of these five points is love as brothers and the others grow out of it. So you picture a flower uh, that has this central stalk and then out of it grows these other points, these other beautiful blooms that we are to look at and to run our, and to order our lives after them. What these five virtues should do if lived out or heated is they present the entire or the ideal, I guess the ideal portrait of what, the new testament church should look like if we live out these principles so let's review them one by one in the order that peter gives them to us first of all he exhorts us that he exhorts them his his readers and us to be of one mind be of one mind or another translation would be to live in harmony with one another as some translations have it the greek text here reads like-minded that's literally it reads like-minded does this mean that all christians must think the same way well not quite, obviously. But when it comes to salvation through faith alone in Christ alone, uh, there's no question that all those who are truly children of God and heirs of the promise should think the same, right? We should all should think the same when it comes to salvation. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, to gra- by grace alone, in Christ alone. That's, there's no exceptions to that. We all should think the same along that. In the defense of truth, we should all be of one mind, and in the practice of truth, we should all agree. Those are true. However, when it comes to things unclear, we're not to be self-serving, we're not to be stubborn or forcing our opinions upon someone else. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. In fact, turn with me to Romans uh, chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, good parallel passage in which Paul gives some clear directions as to how we are to live with one another, how we are to understand each other and care for each other. <clears throat> Romans chapter 14, we'll look at verses 1 through 12. Titled in this, In some of your Bibles might say, The Law of Liberty. Receive one who is weak, verse 1, receive one as weak in the faith, not, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls, indeed he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and here's the key point, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And, and let me stop here for a second. If you look at this paragraph here, look at all the times we're going to see those words, to the Lord, okay, to the Lord, to the Lord. It's going to be repeated multiple times. <clears throat> Again, looking back, at verse 7, for none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Let's stop right there. That's the text. So that portion of scripture, notice how that theme is there, which is what Peter's repeating here as well in his text, to the Lord. We're to do everything as unto the Lord. We're to consider others before ourselves. We're to think about them more than we think about ourselves.
1: We're to do everything
0: as unto the Lord and with the compassion for those around us. <clears throat> we should all study to show ourselves approved unto God, as we're told in 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly dividing or understanding and applying the word of truth, but not that we might lord our knowledge over others or look down on those who have not yet attained such knowledge. As as we taught in the Spiritual Gifts series, if you remember, our goal should be to live in harmony within the body of Christ, not at the expense of truth, but in adorning the truth as we live out our lives, as we seek to please God, and as we edify and encourage one another. We're thinking of, of those around us. Okay, secondly, in Peter's teaching here, back in our text, we are to be sympathetic. Sympathetic or to have compassion for one another. And really the mark of Christian unity is not a cold agreement on doctrines. Oh, yeah, we agree with that. Sure, fine. No, there's a warmth there. Rather, it's to be a loving concern, an empathy with among fellow believers in joy and in sorrow. We are to rejoice with them who rejoice and weep with them who weep. Romans twelve fifteen. In fact, this is not a new concept, not just a New Testament concept, but rather one that God commanded among the children of Israel, his chosen people, back in the Old Testament. In Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 9, he says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, execute true justice, show mercy and compassion everyone to his brother. Unquote. Remember, we're members of what? One body. Okay? We're one in Christ, and therefore, even Christ, and therefore We are to, if one part suffers, as he said, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. The Puritan Robert Layton said this, "This, where there is grace and the spirit of Jesus Christ, there is sympathy. So referring back to Peter's point here, we'd have sympathy with one another. Where there's grace and the spirit of Jesus Christ, there's sympathy. He also said this, I love this statement. Grace does not sit in judgment. Over those who have fallen, but sits down with them and mourns with them. Think about that for a minute. Grace does not sit in judgment over those who have fallen, but sits down with them and mourns with them. Mourns with them over their sin and encourages them to repent. We're not to excuse sin in any believer's life, but we're not to ridicule them or lord it over them as though we ourselves would never sin as they did. And you can see James two thirteen about that point. <clears throat> The third thing Peter's talking about here in this first two verses of our text is the root or the stalk, as I mentioned before, upon which all of these virtues grow. And that is to love as brothers, to love one another as brothers.
1: It's a recurring theme
0: throughout the epistle. In fact, I can give you four references. We don't look them all up right now. But first Peter, chapter one, verse twenty two. First Peter, chapter two and verse seventeen. First Peter, four, eight and first Peter, five, fourteen, all Referring to loving one another as brothers. Love is the foundation of our union. And that union is indeed founded in Christ, who is the manifestation of God's love towards us. The familiar text where God commended his love towards us. that While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in Romans 5.8. And we are to love as brothers for we are what? We're brothers in Christ. We are one in Christ. So we're to love one another. Also, Paul tells us in Romans 12.10, be kindly affectionate to one another in love, in honor, giving preference to one another. That's hard, isn't it, to constantly be thinking of giving preference to others. We prefer ourselves in most cases, but we're to give preference to one another. That's what a true believer is when it comes to being brotherly loved, when loving your neighbor as yourself, really what we're talking about. Excuse me. Our love for our brethren is but a manifestation of obedience to the second great commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. First 1 Thessalonians four and verse nine tells us that we are taught of God, we're taught of God to love one another. And in Hebrews thirteen, one it says, Let brotherly love continue. In other words, brotherly love is not an occasional thing when we feel like it. No, it's a continuous thing. We're to continually love our brothers and care for them and desire to see them blessed even as we are blessed. So we're not talking about a sentimental love or one that is in word only, but rather one that reveals itself in deeds and in truth, as John tells us in 1 John 3.18. In fact, Jesus commands us in John 15.12 to love one another as I have loved you. Whoa. Think about that. Is that an easy task, to love one another as he has loved us? Not easy, but that's a command. That's an exhortation from our Savior. We are to love one another as he loved us. We think of how much God loved us when we were unlovely, then perhaps by His grace, we can love one another in spite of our faults. But keep that in mind: love one another as I have loved you." That's Jesus' words to us. <clears throat> Challenging, but by His grace we can do it. Okay, the fourth thing Peter talks about here in these first two verses, we are to be compassionate or tender-hearted toward our fellow believers, similar to being sympathetic, but it involves maybe a more deeper feeling, <clears throat> especially. When we observe another person's suffering, which is what Peter is addressing here in the text. Some other translations use the word pitiful, meaning to show pity towards someone who's suffering. And as I mentioned a moment ago, we are, if we are compassionate, we can bear with the weaknesses of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're compassionate. We understand that they're not as strong as we might be in certain areas or that they have challenges that we don't have. That relates back to loving our brethren. As it says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, it tells us, Hear all, bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. That's what love does. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So may the Lord give us a truly tender and compassionate heart when it comes to dealing with one another. That's the point. <clears throat> Fifthly, <clears throat> and last in these virtues, Peter tells us to be courteous. To be courteous. In other words, to put others first, be considerate of others. Interesting, the Greek word here, which is philophron, which means friendly of mind or kind. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. Philophron to be friendly of mind, to be thinking of others, okay, to be courteous, to put their, their um, needs ahead of our own, to be courteous. These five virtues reflect the glory of the church when we as brothers and sisters in Christ can live together in unity and in harmony. People can see Christ in us, the hope of glory when we, as his body, demonstrate to those about us those characteristics that are his as a humble, self-sacrificing servant of God. In verse 9, Peter makes a powerful statement concerning how we are to respond to those who persecute us. And in that statement, we hear the echo of our Savior's words in Matthew 5.44 when he said, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them who despisely use you and persecute you. And again, Paul repeats the same theme in Romans 12, 14, when he says, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. I also want to see Romans 12, 19 through 21. Instead of replying in kind to someone who treats us poorly, we are to seek to be a blessing to them. As one commentator says, oppression helps grace to become stronger. Oppression helps grace to become stronger. In fact, when you think about it, the more we feel our own weakness, or the greater the trial the more god can be glorified when we lean upon his strength and wait for his deliverance if we're trusting in our own strength our own ability to get out of situations then we're not being blessed we're not trusting in him we need to lean upon him not that we seek out trouble or we seek out trials so we can say oh yeah we're trusting the lord no but we when we are in a situation rather than depending upon our own strength our own wisdom our own skill in the situation we commit ourselves to god he is more glorified when we lean upon him and look to him for guidance and direction <clears throat> as peter taught us to show love and compassion for our fellow believers here in verse eight here in verse nine he's teaching us to love our enemies to love our enemies as god has called us to inherit a blessing in christ a blessing we do not deserve so we too can bless our enemies by praying for them being kind to them in word and deed and pointing them, yea, calling them, to repentance and faith in Christ. Remember, we are no more worthy of God's blessing, of his mercy, and of his grace than our most wicked enemy. We are not more worthy than they. It's only by God's mercy and grace that we are his. So let's not engage in a war of words or a battle with those who are wicked, but rather forgive them as Christ forgives us and intercede for them as Christ is now interceding for us before the throne of God. <clears throat> Let's move on now to our second point tonight, which is the eyes of the Lord watch the righteous. The eyes of the Lord watch the righteous, so live righteously. The eyes of the Lord are watching the righteous, so live righteously. Verses 10 through 12. So, in light of what Peter has taught us here in verse 9, he once again quotes an Old Testament passage to show us how we should live because of God's blessing upon us. Let's read verses 10 through 12. <clears throat> For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. <clears throat> These are taken from Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. We note that Peter begins with the word for. We told you before, time you see that word for, it indicates the authority of God's word. He's saying, for God's word says this. If a believer is to enjoy the blessings God has given him and expresses and experience the joy and the fullness of a good life, even amidst the persecution, then there are three basic rules or requirements that he or she must follow, as we're shown here in this text from the Psalm 34. He must control his tongue. He must hate evil and do good. And he must seek peace and pursue it. Again, let me read those three points. You must control your tongue, hate evil, and seek peace and pursue it. Again, we must realize how dependent we are upon the grace of God to fulfill any of those three requirements. Psalm 16, verse 2, O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord, my goodness is nothing apart from you. I, I can't be good apart from God. I cannot fulfill these requirements apart from God. So let's look at each of these keys to a godly life that Peter has set forth here. First of all, We must keep our tongues from evil and our lips from deceitful words. James chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 tells us, Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts of great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. O beloved, we need much grace much grace and the restraining power of the Holy Spirit in this area. A Christian must be true to his word and his speech should be full of the word of God that his fellow man may both trust him and be blessed by him. So our tongue is a very important instrument that we might glorify God and edify others within the body and reach the lost. So we need to be careful of our speech. James chapter, I guess it's, uh, excuse me, no, again, this is not just a New Testament concept. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. These are the things that ye shall do. Speak to every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. Let me read that again. Zechariah eight sixteen. These are the things that ye shall do. Speak ye, every man, the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. We, of all people on earth, God's representative, must be known for our integrity and our truthfulness, loving, in our words, people that can be trusted. <clears throat> Remember, God has never repealed the ninth commandment. He's never repealed it. You shall not lie. And We, of all people, should keep that commandment and be a, an example to the world. Secondly, uh, looking at these points that Peter has there, as we did when we first came to Christ, we must continually turn from evil and do that which is good. Turn from evil and do which is good. Hear these words of our Heavenly Father in Isaiah chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, and plead for the widow. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. That's what Peter is talking about here. We can avoid evil by keeping ourselves busy, humbly doing what pleases our Lord. That's one way to avoid evil. If we truly love him who loved us, then we should hate evil. We're told that in, in Psalm 97, verse 10. If we love the Lord, we should hate evil. On the positive side, we should delight ourselves in his statutes. Delight ourselves in the statutes, Psalm 119, and verse 16, and find joy, <coughs> special joy, in pleasing him by doing good. As Paul tells us in Romans twelve two, we are not to be conformed to this world where evil is, so often looked upon with favor, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Thirdly, as Peter is speaking of these verses here in verses 10 through 12, thirdly, we must be a people of peace, meaning in this case, external peace with men and women, about about us but the apostle paul exhorts us in a similar way in romans twelve eighteen when he says if it is possible if it is possible as much as depends upon you live peaceably with all men that's a great challenge isn't it some men make it very difficult to live peaceably with them but still that's our goal <clears throat> in fact one as one commentator points out the new testament repeatedly repeatedly exhorts us to live in peace with all men let me give you five six different references here that speak of that romans 14 19 romans 14 19 2nd corinthians 13 11 2nd corinthians 13 11 1st thessalonians 5 13 1st thessalonians 5 13 2nd timothy 2 22 that's two twenty two, and hebrews 12 14 all of those speak of living in peace with all men now note our text here in 1st peter chapter 3 says that we are not to seek peace in an indifferent or a casual way, but we are to what? Pursue it. Ah, when we pursue something, that involves some commitment, doesn't it? It involves a little bit more than just a casual, oh, yeah, I think I'll do that. No, it it involves a a strong commitment, a willingness to go all out, to seek peace, to pursue it. It means even when it's difficult, we are to seek to be at peace with our neighbors. We must go the extra mile, in other words.
1: Remember the words of our
0: Savior in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, finally, in this section, we note the important first word, I guess you might say. The first word in verse 12, as Peter concludes his quote from Psalm 34, he says, for, once again, he uses that word for, or therefore, or here is why we should follow these principles that I just laid out for you, is because our all-seeing, all-knowing God, is watching over us, and his favor is upon those who fear him, and he answers their prayers. There's a promise there. Why should we we obey all these commands here? To be loving, to be compassionate, to be people of peace, to speak the truth. Because our, our God, our Father, is looking over us. He's watching us. Psalm 33, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy. The eye of the Lord is on us. God shows his mercy and favor towards the righteous, his people, by his open ear to their cries. However, as Peter points out, the face of the Lord, his righteous judgment, is against those who reject his will and who do evil. Remember these solemn words found in Hebrews 10.31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So we need to take seriously the admonition that we are understanding God's watching us. We are to live as to please him. And obviously, those who don't should not be unexpected to receive his righteous judgment. Even now, his patience extends to those who know him not in his redeeming love. No one should think that God doesn't care or doesn't know about all things. He does know all things. So we need to encourage people to repent now. Repent now of your rebellion against him and his will and to turn from evil and trust Christ as your redeemer. That's our message. The one who will freely reconcile you to to his father and set you on a path of righteousness for his name's sake. That's what we need to proclaim. That's what we need to encourage our loved ones and friends. Lastly, we'll look at the third section here. The last two verses we're going to look at tonight, verses 13 and 14. And we'll entitle this little section, Be Happy. Be happy even in suffering. Why? For righteousness' sake. Be happy in suffering for righteousness' sake. So what we come to here in these two verses is the full expression of Peter's third theme of this epistle, that of suffering. Let's read verses 13 and 14. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. We'll stop right there. Just have a brief introduction. Uh, in these, three verse, these two verses, but it sets the pattern for the rest of the epistle. Okay, this is the pattern, the third pattern. It's uh, Peter's long side note, by the way, of verses 8 through 12, as I mentioned before, is like a bridge. It's a bridge between his lesson on submission and this new one on suffering. In fact, it's kind of the foundation for both when you think about it. So when he asks the question in verse 13, he's looking back on all that he has been saying up to this point. Remember his point in 1 Peter 2.15 when he said, By doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. We are to do good for the glory of God and leave the consequences to him. We don't worry about the consequences. We leave it in his hand. As Simon Kistemacher said in his commentary, God does not shield the believer from external causes that might bring about suffering. But God always stands next to the Christian to support him in doing what is good. So God isn't going to keep us from any troubles that might come into our life. But he will be with us through those troubles. He will strengthen us as we lean upon him. <clears throat> Peter asked this rhetorical question in verse 13, much like Paul does in Romans eight thirty one, when he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that's true. When we think about who is for us, God is. Therefore, in the midst of trials and troubles or persecution, God is with us. He is for us. We know, of course, that there is no one who can stand against God. In fact, John Knox in the 16th century, the Scottish reformer once said this, with God on his side, a man is always in the majority. With God on his side, a man is always in the majority. Peter wants his readers here to realize that the one intending to harm them is, is one who does evil, and he just told them that God is against such people. Okay, So don't worry, God's against them. He's aware of the situation. Even if God in his sovereign purpose does allow us to suffer for, note, righteousness' sake, then you're blessed. You are blessed if you suffer for righteousness' sake. And this echoes the words of our Savior. Again, in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Greek construction here that Peter uses in verse 13 tells us that he considers to be remotely possible, or you know, there's a remote possibility, that anyone will suffer for doing good, though they may suffer for other reasons. So he's, the way he's constructed, he's saying, it's probably not you're going to suffer for, being, for doing good, but you're going to suffer for doing wrong. Once again, Peter indirectly borrows from Isaiah. He loves to quote from Isaiah in his epistle. And so he quotes from Isaiah 8, verse 12, in in verse 14, and he says, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And again, we're to look beyond what we might suffer here and rely on the eternal hope that is ours in Christ. In fact, our Lord's words in John 14, 1 come to mind when he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. When we focus on him, troubles begin to melt away. When we trust in him, we know we can go beyond those troubles because our hope is eternal, not temporal. <clears throat> Excuse me. Also reminded of Paul's word. Paul echoed the Lord's thoughts here in, in, uh, to Timothy on this subject. You might remember from Brance's message on suffering in 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we endure, we shall reign with him. We will reign with Christ. We are not to be afraid. But rather we are to walk in the fear, the reverential trust of the Lord. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians as we begin to close our thoughts for today on this subject. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 3 through 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And here's the thought that, again, Peter is repeating in this, this whole chapter. Who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation which is effective for enduring the same sufferings, which we also suffer, or if we are comforted it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. What comforts, what consolations are ours in Christ when he is presented and present in the believer's heart, fear has no place for he is our strength and our shield and our ever-abiding hope. May we walk in the unity of faith, pursuing good works for the glory and honor of our Savior, and enduring all things for his name's sake. And remember, if you're in Christ, it is well with your soul, both now and for all eternity. So rejoice in him, live for him, and hope in him. Let's close in prayer.